For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Governor Stitt is calling for the state auditor to do an investigative report of the Department of Education. Stitt says he's concerned about accountability systems within the agency after an audit of Epic last year uncovered millions of dollars in mismanagement for the virtual charter school. State Superintendent Joy Hoffmeister calls this an attack on her department and public education in general. Neva, why call for this audit? Well, I mean, the, the governor made the point that he had concerns about accountability systems within the State Department of Ed. I mean, I think it's no secret. We've talked about the fact that the governor and Joy Hoffmeister, they have been at uh, loggerheads on a number of issues uh, for the past couple of years. There was even talk uh, back during session that she was considering uh, her own uh, race for governor next year. So you have the governor, his secretary of education, Ryan Walters, running for the spot that Joy Hoffmeister will be leaving. And so there's a lot of political dimension to this. But I think when you look at just the idea of these audits themselves, first of all, I mean, Hoffmeister did make the point that there had been more than 20 financial compliance, programmatic, all of these various review audits that have been done by the uh, auditor's office already in the past six plus years. So it's not that auditing hasn't gone on. I think it's a call by the governor last week that he's got a specific look that he wants to see. And he's made this point. And from an outside perspective and the, and the public perspective, I think people do respond to the idea that they want accountability, transparency. They want to know that people actually know where the dollars are coming in, where they're going out. We're talking about $3 billion. I mean, it's a lot of money. And I think when you look at identifying the kind of the flow of this money in, where it is going out, and uh, trying to really see with all of these school districts across the state, making sure that people believe and know that there's a watch on what's going on and this audit process is in place. So people will be fall down on both sides probably mm -hmm. of this question like they always do. But we know there have been a lot of questions raised all the way back to the conversation about Epic and other things that have gone on, as well as the most uh, recent one that Hoffmeister actually asked for with uh, Western Heights uh, mm -hmm. School District. So I, I think the long and the short of it is this is an ongoing story that we'll hear a lot more about in the months to come. Ryan. Well, and probably for over a year to come. I mean, the, the audit that the governor has requested here is a comprehensive audit of the entire State Department of Education. I mean, that's an enormous scope for the state's auditor inspector, Cindy Bird, to undertake. And I think that the, the idea that this will get done in months, I think it's probably going to be more like a year before we see any results out of this. And I, I agree with Neva. It's difficult to ignore the political dynamics that are happening in the background here. We've got the governor's appointee running for this position, of course, not running against Joy Hoffmeister. She's term limited out. Mm -hmm. And I think that Superintendent Hoffmeister, her political ambitions aren't entirely clear. As Neva mentioned, you know, she had there were folks talking about her as a potential Republican primary uh, opponent to Governor Stitt. I've even heard things that she might consider running as an independent or a Democrat on the Democratic side against the governor in 2022. So I think that those plans aren't entirely clear right now as to where she would be. And many political observers would look at Joy Hoffmeister as one of the few people that could run a competitive campaign against Governor Kevin Stitt. I think Governor Stitt is in a very solid position politically in Oklahoma. His re-election right now, most political 
technical watchers would say is all but assured. But if Joy Hoffmeister were to enter the race, that would be, an, I think, the most credible threat to his reelection. And there are ongoing audits with the State Department of Education, as Neva mentioned. There's a great article by Megan Prather and Trey Savage over at Nodendoc. And I think that one of the most important parts that they look at the complicated funding formula and the complicated streams of revenue that do come into education. I think that that's going to make this a, a very difficult audit to complete. And perhaps if you look back at the original request for this audit, it comes from lawmakers in November of 2020, after Auditor and Inspector Byrd had found these irregularities and possible lacks of oversight with the State Department of Education with regard to funding to EPIC. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if the governor had a more targeted audit to look at just those issues that have popped up in that audit of EPIC, we might have faster resolution here and some more transparency and then possibly something else to look into. But this huge audit is going to you know, be very taxing on resources and take a long time before we ever get that kind of transparency that we're, we're looking for here. I do, I do think that one of the statements that uh, Superintendent Hoffmeister made where she basically was uh, saying that the governor was basically launching just another attack on Oklahoma's public education system. I think that is a overused and almost trite argument on the part of many of these folks in education. There is a need and there is, I think, a desire by many in the legislature and certainly in the public, as well as in these school districts across the state, to make sure that there is accountability and transparency on the dollars that are being put into education because we all know, I mean, we have struggled with making sure we get dollars to the classroom. That's why we've had uh, such a strong conversation going on about education for decades. And I think this is just another element in that, but we need to keep it in its proper context. I mean, audits are audits. You're right, Ryan. It's going to be a much more lengthy, comprehensive. I think the governor said in in a statement I read that this was uh, the first of its kind in the history of the state. If that is true, I mean, it's not going to happen overnight, but it is part of that longer, bigger conversation of how do we fix the problems in education so that we get the dollars to the classrooms, and we are able to give the kids in Oklahoma the best possible education. The Oklahoma Cattlemen's Association is asking for the Medical Marijuana Authority to call a temporary freeze on new grower permits. Ranchers say medical marijuana farms now outnumber agriculture locations for wheat, pork, soybean, cotton, or dairy. Meanwhile, newly appointed Executive Director Adria Berry says the agency doesn't have the power to issue a moratorium. Ryan, at at more than 8,700 grower permits, has this industry grown out of hand? Well, I mean, I think that it's difficult to understand where the industry currently is right now in Oklahoma because we don't have a true measure of tracking the entire industry from seed to sale. Full disclosure, I I represent Metric, which is the state's vendor for seed to sale tracking in the state of Oklahoma. But we just simply don't have a handle on that huge number of licenses. How many of them are actually active? And we have an illicit market in Oklahoma that is able to thrive because we don't have the ability to track inventory from the time that it is put into production until the time that it hits a patient's hands. We, the state has selected metric to do that. Metric was ready on April 30. The state of Oklahoma, OMA was ready on April 30. And then there was a lawsuit that was filed with the temporary restraining order that's prevented that from going into effect in the state of Oklahoma. So I hear a lot of these concerns that these ag groups are raising. And 
And I, there, many of them are legitimate concerns, but putting a moratorium on licenses, even if it were within OMA's authority or within the governor's authority to put a moratorium on cultivator licenses in Oklahoma, that wouldn't fix the problem. I mean, I think that, you know, t- typically we talk about the horse, but in since we're talking about the Cattlemen's Association here, the cow's out of the barn. You know, the if we were going to have a cap on licenses in Oklahoma, that would really have needed to be done at the outset of Oklahoma's medical marijuana program. We're too far in. You can't put the to- toothpaste back in the tube. And frankly, caps haven't worked in other states. What will work and what will answer a lot of these problems raised by ag groups is whenever seed to sale fully comes online and this litigation is resolved, I would encourage them because common goals here is if they want to resolve a lot of their problems, you know, weigh in on this lawsuit. Let the Supreme Court, where this case currently is right now on a, on a technical issue before it goes back to Oklahoma County, let those courts know how important it is to have seed to sale online in Oklahoma and how much of a disruption to medical marijuana and other industries a lack of seed to sale has been. And one last thing I'll just say is that you know these, these ag groups are representing ag and agricultural interest. Marijuana is you know, the emerging agricultural crop in Oklahoma. And so I think it's important to look at that in the entire perspective of ag. We can't just say all of these other agricultural crops and marijuana. Marijuana is in there and it's providing a lot of jobs in ag and in particular in rural Oklahoma. Neva. Well, I think there's several things to kind of unpack here. Number one, the the association, this coalition of ag groups that has asked for the adoption of a temporary moratorium on issuing these new grow permits, for the, the statute uh, that I read is clear. I mean, that it says that licenses shall be granted. And so I, I don't think the moratorium idea is, is even something that can be on the table legitimately. But more kind of more important than that is the fact that this is an ongoing legislative issue. I mean, we saw in the past session, the House passed and then the Senate gutted a bill that was authored by Representative Josh West and Senator Casey Murdoch. And basically, I mean, the issue there was about caps and just like Ryan just mentioned. And, you know, the Senate basically, by and large, took the attitude that this is a free market issue, that there's no, they were strongly opposed to the idea of caps. I mean, obviously, many of these growers would like to see something like that in place with the escalating, you know, number numbers happening. And then you've got all of this other confusion that seems to be setting in on, on other issues related to the whole grow issue. And that is that in one of the interim studies just this past week, you had some assessors who in some counties in Oklahoma have taken it, taken the position that they're going to assess these, these grows and uh, these growers. And so you've got operations that are being assessed at 12 to $15 per plant in some of these counties. I mean, and if, if Ryan's contention is that, that this is agriculture, then, I mean, Oklahoma doesn't tax agriculture. So there's so many questions now that are bubbling up and so many big issues that obviously probably will have to be litigated. There'll be a lot of legislation we'll see, I think, come before the, in the next session. And it's just, again, because of the growth of this industry and all of the complications and all of the the questions that are now cropping up by the virtue of the fact that many of these things were not addressed in legislation up front. So I think, I think clearly the ag industry has serious concerns. Um, there are other ag groups that haven't weighed in yet, but as that group, that coalition continues continues to get stronger and 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 more folks involved then they certainly have a significant voice 
voice that they can inject into the into that whole discussion at the legislature next year. And I just had a conversation this morning with uh, Director Barry, and, and I can tell you that you know she, in her very short tenure, is is doing an amazing job. And you know, Governor Stitt handpicked Director Barry to to walk into that role. She's, I think. In a, in a strong position as soon as the, the courts lift the temporary restraining order, which you know, hopefully will be soon, to bring seed to sale online in Oklahoma so that we've got, we've, we've got a legitimate real-time tracking system so that the, what that really does is levels the playing field. Because right now in Oklahoma, we have a bunch of, and the vast majority of medical marijuana business licensees are doing their best. They're trying to comply with the law. They're trying to play by the rules. And they're having to compete with folks and licensees and sometimes illicit market actors that aren't licensed at all. And they just can't do that. And so I think Director Barry is, is very well aware of that. I think she's going to be capable in, in addressing that issue. And she's got some new team members that she's bringing on. And then she's also got continuity. The former director, Kelly Williams, is going to be sticking around as director of operations. So you're going to have some institutional knowledge there as well. I think that a lot of the issues, and, and seed to sale and metric doesn't solve everything, but a lot of the issues that, that ag and other folks in Oklahoma are hearing about and concerns about medical marijuana, we're, start, we're, we're really on the verge of getting the handle on a lot of that. And it's just going to be a matter of time before the courts resolve some of these issues and, and OMA can be in a position to do its job. Oklahoma Attorney General John O'Connor has filed two new petitions with the U.S. Supreme Court calling for a reversal of last summer's McGirt versus Oklahoma decision. Since the ruling courts have reversed several convictions based on the jurisdiction of tribal lands and citizens. Neva, why is O'Connor continuing this push to overturn McGirt? Well, because it's the governor's number one issue and the thing that he was, I think, wanted to see his selection, his pick for attorney general, immediately seize on and continue to work on. And and not only in, in the petitions that were filed last week was the discussion about the reversal of last year's McGirt decision, but they are also looking for at least a ruling that Oklahomans still have uh, jurisdiction over some crimes involving Native Americans in Indian country. So it's the ongoing it's the ongoing issue. It's something that uh, there's a lot, as we've talked about over and over, a lot of concern about because until there's real resolution on this, you've got a lot of, you know, you've got a lot of folks that are just sitting back, you know, waiting with great interest to see. And certainly with the, the attorney general is arguing that both concurrent federal and state jurisdiction would be helpful, that it would further not only the the federal and tribal interests, but it would enhance the ability, you know, to protect those that need to be protected in this process. So I think this will be something that will remain at the forefront in the attorney general's office and certainly something that attorney general O'Connor, when he took the job, knew knew, uh, that this was going to be something he was going to be spending, I think, a great deal of time on. And Ryan. Well, if you there is a you know, a tweet by by the governor where he mentions that this this case where there's a, a man that was convicted in a drunk driving accident or not an accident but a, a drunk driving crime and and ended with the death of a young boy who was riding his bike home from from a church event and the young boy was a tribal member and the person that that hit him and was ultimately convicted was not a tribal member and the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals has recently vacated that conviction on the basis that there was not jurisdiction by the state to prosecute this person because what you had was an Indian victim in a defined Indian country jurisdiction. 
And under the Major Crimes Act, it's very clear law that the you that the federal government has exclusive, not concurrent jurisdiction, but exclusive jurisdiction to try those cases. The Cherokee Nation, in a, in a really interesting, maybe a Trey Savage pointed this out on Twitter, that this may be like the, the only kind of real dialogue that we've seen between the tribes and the governor's office. The Cherokee Nation, you know, commented to the governor's tweet and said that that they also feel awful for the victims in this case mm-hmm. and that you know that but the fact of the matter is, is the state illegally prosecuted this and the federal government didn't do what they were supposed to do so people you know did the wrong things and now we've ended up with this possible miscarriage of justice because an individual that committed a crime may be released and now the statute of limitations at the federal level may have run so they might not be held accountable at all beyond what they've currently served in prison the issue of concurrent jurisdiction is, you know, that the attorney general may want that or the governor may want that. Heck, the Cherokee Nation may want that. But ultimately, that has to come about between talks with the Cherokee, between the tribal governments, between the state and then Congress. Mm-hmm. And, you know, right now, whenever the governor just and his attorney general keep trying to fight this and relitigate an issue that has been settled all to go to the Supreme Court, what they really need to do is come to the table and and talk to tribal governments and then ultimately Congress and come up with a solution to this so that these types of travesties of justice don't happen. Lawmakers are trying to figure out how to get more Oklahomans back to work despite the state having one of the lowest unemployment rates in the nation. In fact, at 3.2 percent, our jobless rate is back to the same place it was the month before COVID-19 hit the state. The interim study was requested by Oklahoma City Democrat Kerry Hicks to look into factors including childcare, minimum wage, and unemployment benefits. Ryan, why do you think jobs aren't getting filled? Well, I think that it was important for Senator Hicks. You know, she set a, a tone walking into the interim study. She said, I want people to come in with an open mind because there do seem to be some narratives that fit, you know, different political models, you know, regardless of, you know, what side of the aisle you come from. You walk into this conversation and your, your idea is either, well, people aren't going back to work because they're lazy and we're giving them government benefits. And so why should they come back to work? And then on the other side, you've got folks saying that, uh, you know, people aren't coming back to work because of child care issues or a, a lower minimum wage. And so Senator Hicks really invited people to come to the center and study and have a conversation. The, the, the fact is, you know, pretty obvious to anybody in Oklahoma that in these low wage, high stress jobs, there is a shortage. And then you add on top of that supply chain shortages. Anybody that's working in retail right now for Oklahoma's just awfully low minimum wage of $7.25 an hour, which is not livable at all. But if you're working in these jobs right now, you're often working without coworker support. You're working longer hours. You have customers that are angry and upset, long lines. You're, it's it's, it's a, an incredibly stressful job. And so if you're doing that and you're making a wage that isn't livable to begin with, it doesn't really take you know a lot of rocket science to see why it's hard to attract people to those jobs and then you know going back to another topic we were talking about which was you know uh, cannabis in oklahoma there are i mean what one of the things that you're seeing right now is that they are hiring people and they're paying better wages and for entry-level positions they're paying benefits for entry-level positions and you know that's an industry in oklahoma hey i gotta tell you i've got folks that I've been worked for and in rural Oklahoma, small towns that are starting people off at $13 an hour with insurance benefits and, and retirement accounts. I mean, that's, that's kind of unheard of. And that's, that's going to be hard. We're all going to experience longer lines at McDonald's until the McDonald's of the world and everybody else realizes that we can't 
use desperation as a way to get people back into these jobs again. Uh, Neva. Well, I mean, granted, the 3.2% unemployment rate, I mean, when you look at that and then you drive down any street in, in Oklahoma and you see hiring signs in almost every window. I mean, it is a it is a huge problem, but it's one that's there's not an easy fix. I mean, the idea that somehow it's it it is about the competition in the marketplace. It's about employers deciding what they can do to to hire and what the hiring price you know is going to be versus uh, the the bigger picture that some of these folks want to talk about, which is the the competition between the medical marijuana industry and their fourteen to fifteen dollar average uh, hourly wage going in versus the ones that you're talking about, Ryan, the, the food service and the hospitality, transportation, which are many of those jobs that still are on the lower end of the of the pay scale, the minimum wage. But it's not going to be fixed. I mean, everybody seems to, in this conversation, it seems to oftentimes move toward the idea that we just need to find a way to prop it up or make it easier and make it, and make it easier is not, I think, a legitimate conversation. I mean, we saw back during the, during the pandemic at it, at its height that we had uh, these enhanced uh, unemployment benefits uh, that were being paid many, many in the, in the, uh, marketplace felt like that 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 was a was discouraging folks to go back to work, and so there was that element to it. So I think we're still seeing the aftermath of a year of COVID nineteen pandemic and all of the all of the impact on uh, jobs and on employers across the state of Oklahoma. Many have closed their doors. I mean, and it's and so there are many things that we have to address, and it's not just the fact that it's a wage issue of how much a, a person is going to get paid. It's the bigger picture of how do we make all of that work to the benefit of Oklahoma overall. Yeah. And, and Neva, I, I, I agree. I think that it, it goes beyond wages. I think they're, you know, like childcare issues are, are huge and, you know, maybe that, and maybe it's uh, not even just children. I mean, you've got a, an, an older parent living with you. I mean, there, there are a lot of things that, that have happened in the last year and a half that have just changed a lot of people's expectations and abilities to be able to enter the workforce. And I, I agree, there's there's not there's not a simple answer to this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the meantime, I think that one of the things that we can all do as Oklahomans is have some patience with folks. I mean, if you're walking into a retail store and, you know, I, I say this you know a bit as somebody who's married to somebody who works in retail, but if you're walking into a retail store, if you're walking into a, a fast food restaurant or a food service business at all, you know, just be patient. You know, people are are dealing with long lines. They don't have as many people working, and the the supply uh, chain issues on top of that, where right. there are just products that aren't showing up. You know, just be patient, and that's something that we can all do as Oklahomans for our for our friends and neighbors. Tulsa Mayor G.T. Bynum is get, is setting up a new political action committee to help candidates for city council. According to paperwork filed with the city clerk's office, the Greater Tulsa PAC was established to support, quote, pro-Tulsa candidates. While the race for city positions are nonpartisan, Bynum is a Republican and the PAC is being run by a registered Republican and former aide to Senator Jim Inhofe. Neva, is this a way to support conservative candidates for Tulsa? Well, I think what the mayor has said is it's a way to support pro-Tulsa candidates, folks that will be on the, the council that will work together. I mean, I think one of his comments that he made in, in this conversation was that 
in his mind, one of the most important determinants in advancing the city is to be able to have a city council you can work with. So as mayor, I mean, I think he recognizes that there's this need. He's already said that he won't run for a third term as mayor. He's not ruled out, you know, other elective office in the future. But I think he's looking at this not as some advancement for a political party by any stretch. He made that clear. This is nonpartisan. These are nonpartisan races. And he wants to, he wants to, I think, be proactive in trying to uh, have resources available to help candidates. They are not going to weigh in by his own conversation and be recruiting candidates, it appears. But this group will uh, make endorsements only after filing closes. So I think it does. I think it is an interesting step looking at these 2022 city council races in Tulsa and probably something that may become a model that other cities uh, across the state may use if they want to be more proactive in the conversation about what types of candidates are running for these council positions and do they have the best interest of the community in mind or do they have a limited or kind of a single agenda that they want to advance? And that becomes very difficult when you're trying to uh, operate in a council, mayor council form of government. Ryan. Well, you know, I worry that even though he said he's not running for re-election, I I think that I, I worry that something like this, is perceived as an attack. In particular, there are a couple of members on, on council that are likely to have re-elections coming up and, and will be challenged by more conservative candidates for those t- Tulsa City Council positions. And there's, you've, you've got to wonder if you're one of those members of, of council, you know, how is that going to affect your relationship with the mayor who's potentially out raising money for an organization that could ultimately you know, be used as a, a third party independent expenditure against you in an upcoming election? I mean, that's that does create, a, I think, a, an odd and difficult dynamic. And it's it's not new to the world of Washington. Uh, I mean, it's not necessarily even new to the to the state capital. But it is, I think, you know, something that we typically haven't seen at the municipal level where a mayor has created a pack. And then, you know, and I, you know, Neva talks about the, the you know, best interest of the community. And I think that that's what, you know, Mayor Bynum would say as well. Those are the, I think the the issue there, especially if you're one of the folks that could be on the receiving end of, of a negative independent expenditure here, is how do we define that? You know, what what is in the best interest of the community? You know, what is pro Tulsa? And you know, those those are such vague terms. And you know, the the mayor gave you know some criteria of how they would spend their money, but what wasn't said was what's the mayor's decision making process within the pack? Mm-hmm. Does does the mayor have the ability to say? Yes or no, or is he one of several votes within the pack? You know, these are these are things that we just don't know and probably won't know because that's the that's the nature of these packs. Um, ultimately, it's I think that Mayor Bynum, you know, given his his name recognition and you know leading one of the leading cities in the state of Oklahoma, always speculate about potential for running for for higher office at some point. Mm-hmm. And having a pack like this, even and I'm not sure about the ability to transfer these funds later on to or use them for for state effort later on because they've filed as a municipal pack but it does give give you an opportunity to raise money whenever you otherwise might not be raising money because you're not running for re-election so this is something that keeps them in front of donors and and fresh in their minds i think it's important though from a public standpoint to understand that when we talk about setting up something like this pro tulsa pack 
that you are you're setting something up that is organized, it's registered, as you say, Ryan. I mean, they at the at the municipal level, they file their paperwork with the city clerk's office as opposed with the as opposed to the ethics commission. But nevertheless, there is filing, there is transparency, there is there is accountability on that. Very different from some of these quote dark money groups, mm-hmm. these independent expenditures that come along behind the veil where no one knows. I mean, the money where the money's coming from how and ultimately even totally how it's being spent so i think this upfront explanation of here's what we intend to do here are people that are coming forward that are willing to invest their their money their resources uh, to make a make a donation to a, a cause that they believe in good government how they view that and and how they go about spending that money. I mean, that's their prerogative. And groups on the other side, if someone feels like uh, they want to support a candidate that that may not have a a lot of support from you know a certain segment of the community, they have every opportunity to do the same thing. And this is part of the this is part of the political process that I think folks need to pay more attention to, and then make their decisions based upon all of the information that's out there and available to them. And speaking of paying attention, the city clerk's office, their website, cityoftulsa.org, they have a great site on there for campaign contribution reports. You can look at that for all of the city council districts, but also for these PACs. These, so, you know, I mean, from the transparency standpoint, if you want to look at these things, you know, the, the city of Tulsa has a great website. It's easy to navigate and you can see the, the original documents with just a, a click of the mouse. And Eva and Ryan's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. A programs list like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.